I want to reiterate what Dave was saying and say Happy Mother's Day. Certainly you mothers are a blessing to all of us and I think especially for moms, so much of what you do goes unnoticed. Uh, You live (laughs) far more profoundly than me. Selflessly, uh, self-sacrificially, you live with intention towards your kids, and like I said, so much of it goes unnoticed, but we're recognizing it as best as we can today, saying thank you, and certainly God sees every selfless motivation and act and active intentionality towards your kids and your family, and they are all storing up treasures in heaven. Thank you for being a mom um, you're much appreciated. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. And I'm going to pray right now. Father, it is your good design, your good purpose uh, to give mothers, and you have even woven them into the Ten Commandments that they would be honored. And so we're honoring them and celebrating them. And God, I, I pray that you're a special blessing on them today, um, but also every day that these mothers in their selflessness and their intentionality, uh, you would be pouring out your love on them and giving them the perseverance and the endurance to continue that act of mothering, whether they have kids at home or not. Uh, it is a lifelong journey. And so we pray your blessing on them and your sustaining power on them and that in you they would find rest and feel satisfied. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Mark and we're going to be finishing up chapter 11. We're starting in 11 verse 27 going into chapter 12 verse 12. And... We are in the Passion Week of Jesus, his final week before the crucifixion. And as we saw last week and and a little bit preceding that, the Jewish practices of worship in the temple had become an abomination to Jesus. The Jews were, especially the leadership, they were legalistic, they were hypocritical, they were even racist, not allowing Gentiles to worship in the way that God had intended They they tried to follow the minutiae of the law, and they were abandoning the heart of God. (coughs) And they were despising the intentions of the temple. And in a righteous rage, Jesus comes into the temple. He sees the money changers and what they're doing, and he flips the table. He drives them out by a a whip. He rids the temple of the greed that was so polluting it. And so that's where we're picking up today after those events have just transpired. And I want you to see today as we we step through this passage that not giving authority of your life over to Jesus is to claim that authority for yourself. To deny God is to be God for yourself. And then trusting in Jesus or putting your faith in Jesus is giving that authority to Jesus. You have that juxtaposition. So let's read our passage, Mark eleven twenty-seven through chapter 12, verse 12. And they came again to Jerusalem, and, he was, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they asked him and said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they had all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. 
And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. And still, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Join with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words, and these are hard words. Uh, These words are terrible to to whom those it was delivered. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand these words. May they penetrate our hearts. May they shake us into faith or deepen our faith. And I pray you would use my words to accomplish these things that I cannot naturally do. Keep me from error. Open our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, this is Jesus' Passion Week, leading up to his crucifixion. And every night, Jesus would leave Jerusalem, and he'd go to Bethany to sleep, to eat, perhaps visiting his friends or staying with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And there he would retire for the night and then return to Jerusalem in the daytime. And according to Mark's chronology, which may or may not be factually accurate, but according to Mark, this is Tuesday. And he's returning to the temple. It's daytime. And I want to ask the question, why is Jesus going to the temple? Why is he in the temple? He had just flipped the tables and drove out the money changers. Certainly the Sanhedrin, the governing power of the temple, would be upset with Jesus because they had condoned this, so he was inciting them. And the people were probably thrown into confusion. Why is Jesus there again? The fact that he's leaving every night, the fact that he's flipping tables, it seems like he doesn't belong there. It seems like it's not his home. Well, I want to think in terms of covenants. God gave the law to the Israelites as a terms of his covenant with them. And the most visible manifestation of this covenant on earth is the temple. So God gives covenant through law to the Israelites. And actually, we read a little bit about how that began this morning in Sunday school with Moses. So God gives the covenant, and the temple is the most pronounced earthly manifestation of that covenant. The only reason for the temple is for the fulfillment of the covenants. The only the only way, or for the fulfillment of the law, the only way the law could be fulfilled truly and fully was with the existence and operation of the temple. But we know today that God gave a new covenant in Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus' words, his body is broken and his blood is spilled for the forgiveness of sins. He says, This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant given in forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is the living new covenant. 
standing in the midst of the old dying covenant, the temple. So I think Jesus returns to the temple both as a challenge to the old covenant and as a promise of the new. And you're going to see this played out in our passage today. He's going to be a challenge to the religious leaders. And at the same time, he is offering a promise, or he is the promise. Okay, look again at the end of verse 27. He's in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came up to him. What you're not seeing, because Mark doesn't say it outright, is the chief, the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, these are the three elements that make up the Sanhedrin. So this is a council coming from the Sanhedrin to address Jesus. So what is the Sanhedrin? It is a group of 71 religious leaders. They act sort of as a buffer between Rome and, and the Jews. They had complete autonomy and freedom to enact their religious laws, to operate within the Jewish, the Jewish religion. They held great sway politically, could enforce some laws. In fact, we know that they hold such political sway because they later get Jesus crucified. So these are the guys who are coming up to Jesus and confronting him. And that means that Jesus, by flipping the tables and doing some other things, has incited the highest religious authority on earth, according to the law. Humanity's greatest religious leaders come up to Jesus with their venomous question in verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? So he, they ask him who gave him the right to do these things. Okay, what things? Like I said, he's flipped the tables. That was presumptuous. But he's been doing some other things for about three and a half years. Things that only God can do. Divine actions like forgiving sins. That's something only God can do. And then he accepts the sinners into his fellowship like a tax collector. He reclines with tax collectors and prostitutes and Gentiles. Then he redefines Sabbath, if you remember from chapter 3. He redefines temple worship. And right here he's redefining what religious leadership is. So what he's doing is he's taking the, the religious Jewish system, upending it and redefining it and forgiving sins. Things only God has the authority to do. Now the religious leaders are seeing all of this in this man from Nazareth who's a nobody and they say blasphemy. And the consequence of blasphemy is death. So who has given Jesus the authority to do these things? And again, just like in chapter 1 of Mark, Jesus' authority is at center stage. Verses 29 and 30, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So it was a common practice of the rabbis to answer a question with a question. But even still, I've got to say, at first reading, the, the religious leaders ask this question, and it seems like Jesus sidesteps it. It seems like he dodges the question. Cleverly, but it seems like it's a dodge. I want to show you that in his question is the key to their answer. So I think that the religious leaders were probably expecting Jesus to say to their question, to say something like, Well, I I appeal to Hillel or to Shammai. These are like the, the greatest theological minds or or um, systems of the day. So these are the most authoritative interpretations of Scripture. And so he could cite them as his authority as to why he's doing the things that he's doing. Or maybe even more than that, maybe he could cite the law and cite somewhere in the law or in the prophets that 
justify the things that he is doing, and, and he doesn't cite any of those things. Because he's speaking to the Sanhedrin. These are the ones who have authority over Hillel and Shammai and the law. They know these things better than anybody else. So if Jesus is to cite them, they could easily argue him. They might not be right, but they can argue him. So Jesus goes above that. He goes above theological interpretation. He goes even above the law, and he says, Is it by heaven? The Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, have no authority in heaven. This totally supersedes their base of authority. They have no claims here. So Jesus' counter-question is so masterful because it places him not underneath the Sanhedrin, but standing above it. The authority that Jesus carries is present in his counter-question. And Jesus asks about John's baptism, from heaven or from man? So that's the dodge, right? That seems like the dodge. But he's saying that the decision about John is a decision about himself. If John operated with the authority from God, then so must Jesus. Let's go deeper. Let's see why. Now I see the religious council, they're, they're huddling up, dealing with this question that was just asked of them, and instead of honestly considering Jesus' question and, and kind of opening a dialogue with him, they turn to strategy and expediency. Jesus' question to them is a calculated dilemma. And so they try to summon all of their strategic wisdom to not put Jesus in a position of authority. If John was speaking with the authority of God, they should have believed. All the, poli- all the people believed that John spoke with the authority of God. That's why they called him a prophet. He was a prophet of the living God. They knew that John was not speaking of his own mind, that these weren't just his own imaginings, but he was a prophet. So if, if this religious council said John was not from God, their position with the people would be threatened. That's something that these religious leaders couldn't stomach. So they say, eh, we don't know. That's the, do- that's the real dodge. We don't know. Because they knew. They at least had some suspicions. What was John saying then? That's what we need to ask. What was John saying? We know as we've gone through Mark that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He was calling the Jews to repent from their false religion, from their hypocrisy, from their pride. And scores of people were receiving this baptism. In fact, people believe that more people were believing John than believed Jesus. He had a much greater following. The whole nation, some uh, Josephus said, the whole nation went after John. So people were repenting in droves. But this repentance was not the primary function of John the Baptist. The primary function of John the Baptist was to prepare the way for the one to come. So he's not a preacher, because a preacher can call out people to repent. He's a prophet foretelling the Messiah. And the prophet prepares the way. He announces the Messiah. So look again with me at Mark 1, verses 7 and 8. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Messiah that John was pointing to was Jesus. And right here, John is doing it in Mark 1. John is pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. So Jesus' question about whether the baptism of John is from heaven or from man is paramount because it was at the baptism of Jesus where John proclaims Jesus as the Messiah. 
So it is not that the religious leaders do not know where John's authority comes from. It is that they are unwilling to know where it comes from. They will not believe it. They don't want to hear it. First of all, John's calling them to repent, the religious leaders. And then he's saying that this nobody is the Messiah. They do not want to believe it. So they are unwilling to commit themselves to the truth about Jesus. And therefore, Jesus is unwilling to commit himself to them. Jesus said to them in verse 33, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The religious leaders in the Sanhedrin would not be honest about the baptism of John. Despite all the miracles that Jesus was doing that surrounded John the Baptist, despite the people regarding John as a prophet, they were not being honest with themselves. They were not being honest about these divine, earth-shattering realities that were happening in their very presence. The, the hinge of history is before them, and they're not going to be honest about it. Therefore, they could not be honest about Jesus. And I think what they do is what so many people do today. We don't know. I don't know. How can we know? How can we know truth? They wait to make a judgment until there's proof positive. Or they say, I think which is really common, I'm going to keep an open mind. I want to be open about these things. But the painful and tragic irony is that in keeping an open mind, they have neglected to make a decision. That's not an open mind, that's closed-mindedness. It's neglecting truth. And at best, that's skepticism. And at worst, it is unbelief and cowardice. To suspend, to suspend judgments about God is to remain your own God. Your open mind will not let anyone else be God but you. And that's as close-minded as you can get. And that's the mind of these religious leaders. It's not that they did not hear the truth. It's not that they did not have the information. They had everything that they needed to believe, and they were unwilling to believe. Their hearts were hard. They wanted to be the highest authority. They wanted to decide what was good and evil. They would not let God dictate that. So, The Sanhedrin's unbelief, it's not just unbelief out of ignorance. It is calculated, it is active unbelief. There is no faith in the mighty religion of the Sanhedrin. I think if there was faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed, Jesus would have said, truly, truly, I say to you, Instead, he says, neither will I tell you. But, and this should make us love Jesus, he does tell them. He does tell them where his authority comes from. In fact, these are the only people in the book of Mark that he tells where his authority comes from. And he does it in a parable. Just to note, this is the only major parable outside of chapter 4. So that must mean it's significant. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower 
and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So it's important to note, Jesus is still speaking to this council from the Sanhedrin, these people that are supposed to know the Scriptures better than anybody else in Judea, and they do. And because they do, it would have immediately elicited an image from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me sing for my beloved my song, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. This is almost a direct parallel to Jesus' parable. The words from Isaiah are a love song. This is a little bit of a parenthesis. They're a love song, but to whom? I think in chapter 5 of Isaiah, we're getting a little glimpse of love being expressed between members of the Trinity. One member of the Godhead giving a beautiful, satisfying gift to another member of the Godhead. So it's precious and intimate and wildly important. God cultivated a grapevine that he chose the covenant with Israel with tender care and love, and it's to be given as a gift to God. So I'm going to say that another way. God is giving God the most precious gift of a covenant people. This is astounding that what the infinite mind conceived to be a most precious gift within the Godhead is a covenant people. It is amazing. But he takes this vineyard and he places it in the care and the maintenance of tenants, of religious leaders. They were to be sure that it's growing good fruit. They would be cultivating it, making sure the soil's looking good, pruning and everything. Good fruit here that the vineyard is supposed to produce would be spiritual maturity, true worshipers, a holy people, a covenant people. That's the fruit that it's supposed to bear. And the time came, in Jesus' parable, the time came to gather fruit. And so what happens? Verses 2 through 5. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And, he took, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So the landowner is looking to collect what belongs to him, what is his. And he sends his servants. And so in our parable, the servants would be like the prophets. The tenants chase off, they beat, they kill every servant, every prophet that comes to them. So the religious leaders of Israel throughout history kill, beat, imprison the prophets that come to them. And do not give God what is God's. Okay, I think that we've heard that said before, that the the religious leaders killed the prophets. I want to show you how this has happened in Scripture. 2 Chronicles 24, 19. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. So the people are rejecting the word. 2 Chronicles 36, 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking his word and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Nehemiah 9.26 Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast, not cat, cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets 
who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. And now we're going to get to Jeremiah, and these are very specific things that happened to a, a prophet. Poor Jeremiah. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan, the secretary, for it had been made a prison. And now this one is crazy. So they took Jeremiah, and they cast him into the cistern of Malachah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank into the mud. That's like horror show stuff. Putting a person in the mud for who knows how long. That's horrific. And this is how the tenants, the religious leaders, were treating God's prophets who carried the authoritative word of God all throughout Israel's history. And the people of Israel were led astray by these religious leaders. So let's go back to our image in Isaiah. Isaiah 5, the next verse will be chapter 4, or verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I, have no, that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? What more can I do for this vineyard? God says. They've killed the prophets. They've rejected his word. They have thrown off his authority. And now this vineyard is producing wild, bitter grapes. The tenants confiscated the things of God. What more could God do? But what Isaiah doesn't say, and Jesus' parable does say, is that God himself will answer the question at verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. How loving is our God that he would send his beloved son into the hands of such wicked and deluded tenants. His servants, the prophets, were killed and now he sends his son. The servants, when they came, their appeal was to the integrity of the tenants. Right? That they didn't carry the same authority as the landowner. They just came carrying his word. And so they appealed to the integrity of the tenants, that the tenants would heed the word. But when he sent his son, he's no longer appealing to their integrity. He is appealing to what is above the tenants. He is appealing to the law, really the law of the universe. The son has legal claim over the vineyard. It is as much his vineyard as it is the landlord's vineyard, as the father's vineyard. So the son goes with the authority of the father to the father's property to claim the father's due. And what is remarkable remarkable about this verse is the beloved son does not just represent the father's authority, but also the Father's compassion. I think most landowners in that situation, in that time, would have just destroyed those tenants. But still he sends his son. And this is the final and most profound offering for the tenants to give up what is not theirs. The opportunity for the tenants to repent. This is an open hand to the tenants. Repent. And Jesus, the beloved son, is standing before the council of the Sanhedrin, the tenants, offering himself as the authority and with compassion. This parable is a warning to them, and it's an opportunity for them to repent. He is showing the way to come back to God. The parable is being played out as Jesus speaks. And this is the gospel, that God would become flesh 
that he would offer a way to forgive sins, an opportunity to repent, a way to come back to the Father and to right relationship with the Father. Jesus is revealing to the Sanhedrin his unique role in the history of Israel. He is the beloved son from the Father, carrying the authority from the Father, and they treat him with contempt. Verses 7 and 8. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The tenants are absolutely deluded to think that the vineyard would be theirs. If this is the heir, we can kill him and he won't get it. The the landlord isn't coming back so we can have the vineyard. It's insanity. And it is a horrific indictment on these religious leaders in front of Jesus. And it is a horrific indictment on so many today that we could rid ourselves of God And you remember what Nietzsche said, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. And this sentiment has so permeated our world. People might not overtly say that God is dead, I think, but they certainly proclaim it with their lives. They live out this self-deluded perception that God is dead. They live like nobody has say over their lives, like there is no God, like they are God, like nobody has authority over them. And I think Nora Roberts, a New York Times bestseller and alive today, wrote this, God is dead and I am his replacement. Anyone and everybody who does not give God authority over their lives, claims that authority for themselves. God is dead, and I am his his replacement. They might not say it, but that's how they live. And now, this is not just for atheists, because it's really easy at this point to say, that's them, that's the atheists. The Sanhedrin, was, they were not atheists. They were religious. And this was their mindset. So I think you could even sit here in this room today and have this mindset. You say today, by your presence here, I assume, that you follow Jesus. But the life that you live out during the week Does anybody know that? Is your life different? Is your language different? And I'm not just talking about foul language. Are your thoughts different? How about this one? Do you worry? Worrying is saying God doesn't have the authority to take care of this. And you're struggling and striving to somehow control or gain authority over that situation. Worry is an atheistic mentality. And every one of us is touched by this. Everybody is touched by the pride and the arrogance of the Sanhedrin. And so, in our, in our worldliness, in our secularness, in our living as just everybody else lives, in our seeking of comfort, in our seeking of security and pleasure, in the things of the world, in our worry, we are saying, God is dead And I am his replacement. And is not the sum total of human history to rid the universe of God? 
verses 9 through 11. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and is it not marvelous in our eyes? So because of their unbelief, Jesus is telling the religious leaders that they and the temple system are condemned. They are withered to the root, and they will be destroyed. Israel is no longer necessary for a covenant people to exist. Let's look again at Isaiah's image in the vineyard, verses 5 and 6 now of chapter 5. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And after Isaiah said these words, the temple was destroyed. And then it was rebuilt. And after Jesus says these words, the temple is destroyed. God will bring an end now through Jesus. He will bring an end permanently to the priesthood, to the temple, and to Jerusalem. The age of the law will close. But notice that this wrath is not upon the vineyard in in Jesus' parable. The wrath does not fall in the vineyard. The wrath falls on the tenants. Now, to become one of God's holy people or one of his covenant people, you no longer have to be Jewish. You no longer have to perform these ceremonial rituals. You no longer have to go to a temple. You no longer have to keep festivals. The covenant is no longer just for the Jews. The covenant is given to all people, to the nations, to the Gentiles. Like Jesus says, the vineyard is taken and given to others, to all nations. Covenant with God is open to every individual in Jesus Christ from Nazareth. And remember what Jesus said in John 5, verses 21 and 23. The hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? But the hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. People will be free to worship from any place, without rituals, as long as there is spirit and truth. And how is this accomplished? In the parable, it seems that the landowner who is extending this mercy to the tenants, is caught off guard and his son is killed and and he's left almost in like this reactionary position. But look again at verse 11. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This was the Lord's doing. This was the Lord's plan that Jesus would come full of the Father's authority and be rejected and be killed at the hands of religion. Religion is now no longer necessary to worship God, at least not in an establishment, ceremonial, ritualistic, legalistic kind of way. That religion is dead forever. Jesus came and he lived perfectly according to those religious laws, and yet he dies at the hands of the religious. And as the nails are being driven through his hands, he he cries out to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And trusting in that, that forgiveness is giving the authority of your life over to Jesus. 
You can take it up through religion or you can lay it down hiding in the wounds of Christ. The Father forgives if you believe that Jesus is the beloved Son, if you believe that He does have authority over your life, that He has some say over your life. So when we are called to repent, what we are repenting from is that we have the authority over our lives. And now we repent from that and we believe that Jesus has the authority and we give Him the authority. Repent and believe the central message of Jesus when He came to this earth. Repent. You don't have the authority. Believe. He does. Let him be the Lord of your life. So that means conform your life to what Jesus says. Trust him in all the the things that you do, in every aspect of your life. This is the way, the truth, and the life. And I talked about how every single one of us is touched by the pride and the arrogance, the autonomy of the religious leaders. But that doesn't mean that we are condemned like them. Because we have this hope and the wounds of Christ. And so now we can take every single worry that we have and cast them, cast our cares on Jesus. You are not strong enough to, to bear the burdens of your life. You are not meant to bear the burdens of your life. In fact, you are meant to carry a burden. And it's not yours, it's Christ's. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we take Christ's burden, and this Christ's burden is to depend on the Father and do the Father's will. And so we depend that our worries will be met by God. And then we do the Father's will, which is, is like eating, it was like eating food for Jesus. So let it be like eating food for us. Let us be ravenous to do God's will, to do good works, to love others. And this casting our cares on Jesus, giving him our burdens, and then doing the will of God, this is the path of joy. This is how we have joy in life. This is how we live in hope and in freedom. And this is giving authority of your life to Jesus. So Jesus revealed himself to these religious leaders as having the authority that comes from the Father, the authority that comes from heaven. He's revealing that he himself is God, and then the Sanhedrin looks him in the face, and they reject him. Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him. But feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So the Sanhedrin immediately begins to act like the tenants in the parable. Immediately. They, they seek to arrest Jesus. Their hypocrisy and their pride and their religious, religiosity are the uh, human products of the Old Covenant again and again and again. They are the Old Covenant standing in front of the New Covenant. And they will take that living New Covenant and they will kill him, but they will have no victory over the Father's authority because Jesus will rise. These religious leaders will mostly be killed and the temple will fall within the next 40 years and the religious system will come to an abrupt end. True worship will go out throughout all of the earth I've said it before, think about it. We are here in New Hartford, New York, a place I had never heard of, you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago. And we are talking about what happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem with this beloved son. The word has gone out to others. The Father's purposes will be accomplished by the wicked acts of the tenant, of the tenants. So I ask the question, who are you? Or who will you be? Will you cling to religion? Will you re- use your religion to prop yourself up and make yourself look good, to justify your actions? Will you live 
with a practical atheism where you might say you love God and you worship God, but when you go home, there is no God in your life, there is no God in your thinking, there is no God in your language, you won't pick this up all week, and you won't fall on your knees in, your, in prayer. Or, when you go home, will you recognize your utter dependence on the Father for your forgiveness, for your life, Will this become like food to you? Will doing good works become like joy to you? Will prayer become your breathing? And if all of that happens as if a light switch is turned on, could you tell me how that works? Because I think that this is a little more progressive. We're all working through this if we follow Christ. We all stumble, we all fail, we all fall, we all worry, we all have pride. So we're getting there. But the fact is we believe and we repent and we trust and we continue day after day to die to ourselves and give authority to to Christ. Jesus is an open door into this relationship. And so let us walk through it every day. Conversion doesn't just happen once. I mean, I feel like I'm converted every day. At least I hope to be. I need God's saving work happening in my heart every day. Trust in him for your faith and you will have life forever. Let's pray. Father, we are feeble. We are shot through with sin. And yet, if we trust in you, you have made us your covenant people. And it is a wonder, it is marvelous in our eyes. The work that Christ did to come and redeem a people by being killed is astounding. All the more astounding when we realize that we are that people. Hallelujah. We thank you, Father. May we go from here and live like you have authority in our lives. And I pray that you would build that and grow that more and more in each one of us and in me. Do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.